Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Heroin and prescription drug or opioid dependence is a crisis in Pennsylvania and across the nation. Much of the attention has focused on the thousands who have died from overdoses. Addiction often brings with it innocent victims, like families. Perhaps the most innocent victims of all are babies born to drug-dependent mothers. Some newborns suffer from neonatal abstinence syndrome, meaning they are enduring the effects of drug dependency themselves. Federal law requires states to protect these babies, but not everyone is doing what they're supposed to do. And in some cases, after babies have been treated, they are being sent home with a parent who is still being treated for drug dependency. Some babies haven't survived. It's going to be the, the uh, subject of our first part of our program today. Joining us is Kathleen Palm, founder of the Center for Children's Justice. Ms. Palm, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thank you. Also, Dr. Connie Andreco, director of neonatology at Wellspan Effort, a community hospital. Dr. Andreco, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And uh, WITF's Transforming Health reporter, Ben Allen, who has reported on this issue and is our resident expert, if you will, on uh, you're rolling your eyes on, on uh, this crisis that's going around the country and this aspect of it. Ben, thanks for joining us today, too. Thanks for having me, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. Or give us a, you can send an email at uh, smarttalk at WITF.org. All right, Dr. Andrek, I'm going to start with you. 27,000 babies were born drug-dependent in 2013. That's the last year in which we have uh, figures. Mm-hmm. Put those numbers into context. What are you seeing? Okay. What we're seeing really is just a, a sudden increase in the number of babies that are admitted to our neonatal intensive care unit. So normally in our, our NICUs or neonatal intensive care units, we'll take care of preterm babies and then any term babies that are ill. But what we're seeing is just a larger number and a sudden increase over the past couple of years of the babies who need to be admitted to our unit and actually treated for the drug withdrawal symptoms that we're seeing in the, the newborn nursery. Mm-hmm. I, I, when Just to provide some context with that, some of the numbers that I've seen uh, in 2003, now that just isn't the last two or three years, but in 2003 there were 5,000 born in this country and now we're up to 27,000. And from what you're seeing, it's just the last couple of years where we've seen this uh, uh, this dramatic increase. Truly, there's been a, a sudden increase, and depending on what part of the the state you're in, you may see a little bit more than than others. But what we're seeing now, it's it's you know before it was heroin, um, prescription drugs. We're seeing a lot more of, and now there's actually been some shift back to heroin again because people are having a more difficult time getting a hold of the pr- prescription drugs. And it's not just one particular part of the population. Really, anybody can be affected. And so, you know, a lot of the the hospitals are really looking at what are the best ways to identify the moms who are on the medications or, or taking drugs, and then which babies are going to be affected by those drugs? That was one of the questions. The first questions I had is, how do I identify the, the mothers? I mean, do most of them readily admit that uh, they are addicted or dependent on drugs themselves, or does it take a little bit of a, in, you know, uh, investigative work? Right, not necessarily. I mean, we have some moms that it, maybe they were previous heroin users and they ended up in a methadone clinic program, which is great because they're on a steady state of medication. They're followed daily when they get their methadone. We, we know they're a part of a program. They have support groups, and those are the moms that we definitely know that are on the, the, 
the medication. There's some moms who come in, though, who maybe got a prescription from their OB for some Tylenol number threes, maybe a prescription from their family practice doc, and they're taking it and not necessarily admitting to it. And then the second day of life, you see the baby acting a little jittery, and you're like, whoa, what's going on You know, with this child? And then you go back and say, mom, really, how much medication have you taken? And, and you know, it's an embarrassing situation for mom because she doesn't want to admit that she was taking so much. But we really do need to be looking out for these babies and make sure that we're identifying them. Physically, what is a baby who is drug dependent going through? Okay. They're, they're going through hell, honestly. And I mean, if you ask any um, person who was addicted to medication or drug dependent and what they go through, I mean, these moms tell us, I, I know what my baby is going through and it's just, it's awful. So the signs and the symptoms that we see, there's two major systems that are affected. Really, it's the neurologic system and then the gastrointestinal system. And so if you think about what morphine does, for example, it really, it soothes the pain, it, it calms your system. Um, you see all the, the commercials on TV for constipation, oh it God, slows yeah. down, right? You, you can't watch. <laughs> An evening newscast without that. <laughs> right, right. So if you think about it, so just take away that morphine or take away those opioids, and you're going to get the opposite symptoms. So you get a baby who's very inconsolable, irritable, jittery, sweating, breathing fast, heart rates up, temperatures up, and then loose stools, sore bottoms. Um, and sometimes it's really difficult to look at. How do you treat them? What you have to do is you have to give them the morphine back. Um, a lot of people are using morphine. Some um, doctors are using methadone to, to treat. That's our, our first-line drugs that we use. And you have, them, you have to give the drug back that they were actually dependent on, and then you slowly wean it down um, safely. Um, if you just all of a sudden stop and not treat these babies, some babies can actually go on to have seizures and even die from it. Mm. Uh, Kathleen Palm, uh, this is an issue that uh, has been near and dear to your heart. I mean, your organization, uh, you know, right in the name of your organization, the Center for Children's Justice, people hear that and they think, okay, well, there, there must be some kind of justice involved where it is punitive toward the mother. That's not what you're looking at here. No, actually, and, and the center got involved because our, we've had a more than decade-long history around looking at child abuse fatalities and fatalities and near fatalities. And we would see where babies were, we were seeing some trend in babies dying at six weeks, three months, and they were dying from suffocation. There were things that were happening, and when you traced it back, there were babies who were born at birth. And so, and there was a case in Carbon County. You mean de drug dependent at birth. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there was a case in Carbon County involved Braden Cummings. He's actually kind of been the catalyst to some work in Congress. And in Braden's case, it was... It was just so eye-opening how we had so failed both mom and baby in that situation that we were like, we have to start to look at this. And it is tough because from our perspective, we have to be about how do we keep the baby safe, but you can't disconnect from the fact that babies come from moms. So we have to be looking at the safety and well-being of moms and the safety and well-being of babies. And that's why this work around the plans of safe care is so important because we see it as you have to be paying attention and giving supports to both families and to the baby. Um, and, and from our perspective, even though we're child protection, we believe child protection begins by having a health care response to this and a public health response to it. I would imagine that most people, when they look at the situation, before they've thought it through and understand the whole you know, context of what's going on, would say, I don't have a whole lot of compassion for a mother who uh, you know, abused drugs when she was pregnant. 
Uh, and that's where the punitive part comes in, that many people would like to see that mother punished. Well, I think that one of the reasons we've paid as much attention to the fact that neonatal abstinence syndrome can also um, lead by, from an exposure to a legal substance like methadone. So there are times that you have moms who are, in fact, in treatment trying to get clean and sober, but these are difficult times. It's not easy. Anyone who wants to take a pure punitive approach, and I get it. I have three young kids, but the reality is is that addiction is a public health issue. It is a health issue. You know, we wouldn't look at the person who has cancer with scorn. We wouldn't look at the person who has hypertension with scorn. You know, so we have to really say, how do we, you know, work to improve the health outcomes for mom? And then how, by consequence, do we improve the health outcomes for babies? Yeah, I I asked that question, but I mean, and Ben, you can chime in on this, but one of the things I was going to say is that here at WITF, where we've done so much work on uh, addiction and drug dependency, we've heard from many people over the last few years that society, even law enforcement, views it as a much different issue than they used to. It used to be a law enforcement issue, and now most people will say, it is a medical issue. It is a healthcare issue. Well, ben, I, I was going to say not to um, not to um, jump in here, but no, no, I uh, want you to jump in. That's why you're here. One of the things that um, I think is important to also think about, Scott, is that when um, these uh, babies are born, there is a report made to Children Youth Services, and they do have to go through a process. There usually is some type of custody hearing, so it's also important to think about just the discipline on that side too. The you know. In most cases, and I can't speak to all cases, but I can say that um, I was in a, in a NICU at a Harrisburg hospital um, doing a story just on this and also doing a story on a social worker that they employ there uh, to specifically handle these cases. And I think that there is a true recognition now, A, that this is a health problem, but B, that you know you need to follow the steps and make sure that both mother father um if he's in the picture and um and and baby are getting the best care i was with that social worker and it's a lot of stuff that frankly um some of us would assume is is basic stuff but car seat checks and and making sure mom has transportation to see baby every day and making sure that other children in the picture are have a chance to kind of relax and take it easy so that mom can uh, focus on baby for the day and that's so hard because mom needs to be bonding with that child so early in life and for some of these mothers that may live 30 45 minutes away maybe working six days a week and may not have transportation it can be really difficult so you know i think that um talking about how you know we need to get strict and um we need to we need to really uh try and figure out how to how to show these mothers what they've done wrong well i think that really misses the point because it is such a systemic issue that requires a really holistic solution all right. Well, let's talk about uh, a holistic solution. Dr. Andreco, uh we talked about recognizing or the mothers admitting that, uh, you know, that they are drug dependent. Uh, but what kind of treatment is the mother getting at the same time? I mean, I assume, I don't know what the law says, but, you know, one of the reasons we're here today is we want to talk about the law and how it's not being uh, strictly adhered to. But 
I don't know if there's a law out there or not, but what about when baby is being treated, mother is being treated too? And I think that's where we really need more support in our society is for our moms. Because again, as you mentioned, there's a lot of judgment passed on the moms because it is difficult to see a baby who's who's there crying for three hours straight and you're like, gosh, this is you know all mom's fault. But I, I just wanted to, to share a story. I had um, I come across a, a mom who had started drinking alcohol and smoking cigarettes when she was 12 years old. Um, you know, because her her father had given you know her the the drugs and the the cigarettes. By 15, she was doing heroin. By 18, she was doing heroin, prescription drugs, and methamphetamine. And so, to me, we failed from the time when that poor child was 12 years old, and now we're passing judgment on this 18 year old. But she's she's in a program now. Now, some that are actually in programs like methadone programs, they do get more support. But in general, after you know the baby's born, a lot of times they go to a NICU, which is an open bay unit where these children really need developmentally appropriate uh, settings, just dim lights, quiet, which is hard to do in a big open bay NICU with all the alarms happening. And then moms can't stay over most of the time. And so now we've just separated moms and and babies. And how is mom supposed to be really involved with, you know, the the care? Because she can't be there 24 hours a day in a lot of our our NICUs. What kind of support is she getting? Raising a child's hard enough. I have four children at home, and it's just then to have a, a child who may be more irritable than... Uh, a regular child. Um, it's just, it's difficult. We don't have those support programs for moms afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, and I would just say one of the other things that, you know, WITF has been <coughs> wonderful through the years on um, childhood trauma and sexual abuse. And I think that's the other thing is when we confront someone who starts from a punitive perspective, um, we oftentimes say to them, do you understand the degree to which there's a threat of trauma through a lot of these women's lives? And so um, the use of drugs, the use of alcohol is actually something that was born out of somehow, oftentimes some childhood trauma. So, you know, if and and in the case of Braden Cummins, again, this young infant from Carbon County, that was so shocking because it was a mom who had had her own involvement with child welfare, you know, by the age of 20. She's now sitting in prison. Her baby's dead. You know, touch the criminal justice system, touch the child welfare system, touch the juvenile probation system. And so we really have to say, if we want to be so harsh about mom, we probably should turn the spotlight back on our systems and ourselves and say, have we thought about this in a right way? Have we thought about this in an interdisciplinary way? And Scott, let me just jump in here because uh, the social worker at Pinnacle's NICU, she says oftentimes when she meets with mom for the first time or the first or second and third and fourth times, it takes a while for that mother to understand that she's not trying to take her child away because these mothers have been conditioned to fear that their child will get taken away and that these these people in positions of authority are going to try and you know rip rip the family apart and as a result they it takes them a while to frankly open up to her at least you know this is what she says and it can really hurt um hurt the process going forward um until unless you have someone like this this uh the social worker that i'm profiling that is persistent and always wants to be there and is always available and will take kids out for ice cream so mom can get 20 minutes uh, with the baby in the NICU and will go to uh, court hearings and will do everything that you can that, you know, we don't think of as 
quote unquote health care, but is all a part of making sure mm. that baby recovers. You're listening to uh, the WITF Smart Talk on uh, WITF, your home for NPR News and all things considered. Former Congressman James Greenwood had a big stake in uh, this issue. We're going to be talking with him in just a moment. We'll be back in just a moment. You've heard a whole lot about the the opioid crisis across the country, and we're talking about some of the innocent victims of that uh, right now, uh, babies that are born drug-dependent. And uh, joining us is Kathleen Palm, founder of the Center for Children's Justice, Dr. Connie Andreco, director of neonatology at Wellspan Effort, a community hospital, WITS Transforming Health reporter Ben Allen. We're going to be joined by Congressman uh, James Greenwood in just a moment. But before we go to Congressman Greenwood, uh, Kathy, I wanted to ask you, you, you had just talked about Braden Cummings uh, in, in Carbon County, and you said that about the mother that, you know, the baby had died. How uh, did, did Braden pass Well, he away? ended up suffocating, and, and Ben had talked about it earlier, and you'll talk with Congressman Greenwood about this, but there's this federal law about a plan of safe care, and in Braden's case, his mom had been involved in the child welfare system. She had been involved in the criminal courts for what I'll call petty crimes, not minimizing anything, but the courts then had referred her for treatment, and she was in a methadone program, baby was born, neonatal abstinence syndrome, spent several weeks in the NICU, then went home. And, you know, we've already said it, going home with any baby is really tough. Going home with a baby who's potentially, you know, still have some complications from the neonatal abstinence syndrome or some other medically fragile issues, and you're a woman who's trying to maintain your recovery, tough thing. And so in the night that um, they were at home, it wasn't just the methadone, but she had taken some other drugs that night. She took the baby to bed and... Um, um, the baby suffocated. And she rolled over on him? She rolled over on him. And, and the, actually, I remember the headline and the newspaper said, you know, addicted, you know, opiate addicted mom or heroin op- addicted mom kills baby. And I, I have to say, my first reaction was, oh, I'm so frustrated. Like, here we go, another baby and wanting to be angry at mom. And then when you dug deeper, it was like, wow, like this. And for us, that was the turning point. It was like, how are we going to engage people we've never engaged before, the hospital association, the doctors, and say, let's get around the table and really look at this from an interdisciplinary perspective. And actually, that's what led us to go to Congressman Greenwood and say, you were smart. Can you come back into the arena and fight on this issue? All right. Congressman James Greenwood, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Sure, it's my pleasure. Good morning. All right, let's go back to 2003. Uh, from what we've heard so far on the program, that uh, we are seeing a great increase in the number of babies who are being being, being born drug-dependent, but it's not new. In 2003, you pushed the Keeping Children and Families Safe Act. At that time, there were 5,000 babies who were born drug-addicted across this uh, country, uh, and now we're up to 27,000. Why at the time? Go, take me back to 2003. Where uh, did you become uh, very involved in this issue? Well, actually, I'd like to take you back farther than that. Um, first off, I was uh, in, this, in the 19th, late 1970s, I was a caseworker with the Bucks County Children and Youth uh, Social Service Agency. So I worked with abused and neglected children and their parents for a number of years. I ran for the state legislature in 1980 and was elected. And in the mid-80s, you may recall that the, the issue then was the crack cocaine ep- epidemic. And the so-called crack babies were abundant. And legislators around the country were flailing to try to figure out what to do about this and some of them wanted to arrest any woman who was pregnant and using crack cocaine others wanted to uh, deem uh, the doing that child abuse so others wanted to automatically remove the child from the custody of the mother when it was born 
And having been a former caseworker, I thought all of those methods were judgmental and punitive and not productive and would keep women from going into the hospitals. The goal is not to pass judgment, not to do anything untoward to the mother, but rather to help her to have a, a safe plan of care for the child. And that's really all that matters. It, what, what, uh, so I tried to do this in the 1980s um, with crack cocaine, and it was unsuccessful in the state legislature. And then when I went to Congress in, uh, in 1992, I started again. And finally, in 2003, we passed uh, the act. And the whole idea is that when a child is born uh, anywhere in the country suffering from neonatal abstinence syndrome, they're withdrawing from the drugs, or fetal alcohol syndrome, or the systemic presence of a controlled substance, that there needed to be a report. Um, and that report should be made by the hospital, by the doctor, by the nurse, uh, to the local county uh, social service agency. They need to come out and say, hey, mom, you know, we see that your baby's uh, sick. I understand why. Uh, our job is to make sure that you can safely care for this child and to fi find out if you can. So let's let's talk about where do you live? Do you have a safe house? Or are you living in, out of a car? Um, do you have family members? Uh, is there a is the father available and healthy and able to contribute? Do you have a crib? Do you have you know income so that you can feed the baby, whether it's food stamps or what have you, and make a determination. And the hope would be that in in most cases, the mother mother being mothers would say. Um, I have the either, yes, I'm prepared and, and, and I can demonstrate that, or I, I, I'm not prepared and I, I, would, I would welcome your help. In those rare cases, hopefully they're rare, where the mother is just not interested in, in participating in the process, not interested in treatment if she's not in treatment yet, then, the, then you probably would have to go to court and get custody of the child and, and place it in foster care, and hopefully only until the woman, the mother comes around and says, yes, I'm ready to... Mm. To, to do the work necessary to get my baby back. But one of the big parts of this, now this that was on the federal level, and states were supposed to come up with uh, the, their own plans, which Pennsylvania did in 2006. But uh, a big part of the legislation was that uh, children and youth agencies or agencies whose responsibility it was to protect children, and you touched on this, that hospitals, doctors were to contact them to let them know that, Here's the situation. Have to come up with a plan. The problem is right now is in many states, most states, it's not happening. Why? Well, it's a failure at a number of levels. First off, it's a failure of the federal government. Uh, it's not enough just to have everybody complete their paperwork um, and say that they're doing things that they're not doing. The federal government has to make sure that the states are not just submitting their their plans to to do this, but they're actually doing it. The state uh, welfare agencies need to make sure that the, that the uh, counties um, are doing their job and, th and that the hospitals and the doctors are reporting. So now this is not some bureaucratic paper game. It's about the you know, life and death situation right. for the most vulnerable. And, that, and, and so there's a lot of work needs to be done, just working with the hospital association here in Pennsylvania, the medical association, the the pediatric uh, nurses, et cetera. Mm. 
Go ahead. What were you saying, it, Kathy? It, it's really interesting because if you go back to the congressional record and Congressman Greenwood's work, it's you know you see housing, you see home visits, you see treatment, you talk about physical health care. I mean, this was a congressman who stood on the floor who really said, you know, look, we need to look at the full scope. The interesting thing is in 2003, we didn't have evidence-based home visiting, a federal line item for that. Um, we didn't have a governor who's asking for that in the state budget. We didn't have the Affordable Care Act and parity. So there's lots of tools we have in the toolbox today that we didn't have in 2003. And yet we still in some ways seem to get bogged down by the fact that as beautiful as what this roadmap is that Congressman Greenwood gave us in 2003, because it's inside the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, people get, quite frankly, a little wigged out. If we had it inside of the Maternal and Child Health Block Grant, doctors, social workers, children and youth, we'd be figuring out a better way to talk with each other. But in so many years over the last 13 years, we still kind of get like keep ourselves in our boxes and get nervous about this whole punitive okay, conversation. Well, who's we? I mean, because you, you, let's face Professional. it, doctors, hospitals, they want they want to make sure that these babies are taken care of too, but it's not being reported. Uh, figures I saw was like. 40 states well, it's not being reported. And in fairness, I mean, actually, I would give more credit to the hospitals. I think there's actually more um, reports being made by the hospitals. The challenge is, what does children and youth do with this? We make it very clear in federal law. We make it very clear in state law. This is not a child abuse report. So our response has to be, we have tremendous, if we just look at Pennsylvania, tremendous pressure on the child welfare system. One of the things that's really interesting is that inside of this federal law about the reporting, we don't have any dollars attached to it. Largely, the federal dollars in, in, in child welfare are about when you take a child outside of a home. So some of this upfront, so a doctor says, I want to work with mom. She's wanting services and help. How can we put something in place? Even child welfare is, is, is stretched to figure out how to put that in place with no resources. There is another federal bill moving in Congress right now called the Family First Prevention Act that would finally say of all those billions of dollars we spend on child welfare at the deep end, at the foster care end, which is needed, but let's redirect some of those dollars to really put plans of safe care and prevention services in place. So there's a lot of ways that there was a good plan in 2003, but no one's kind of followed up on it. And these are tough conversations, and we've let ourselves off the hook. Congressman Greenwood, let's talk about that. I mean, was there money attached to your bill, uh, enough money? And what is that money spent on? So uh, the the we didn't, uh, as I recall, appropriate much in the way of extra money, but it was a condition. You had to do this as a condition of receiving uh, federal funds. So let me give you. I've been out of Congress for since 2004, but I was up on the hill last week talking to a, a leader on this issue in the, in the Pennsylvania delegation, and he said that he was really getting some pressure from one particular county commissioner, saying, "We don't have the resources to do this. You know, we don't have the resources to do this." Well, first off. They do, because this is not, for most counties, this is certainly not an everyday thing. Most counties experience you know, a handful of these cases in, a, in the course of a year. Secondly, this is a pay-me-now or pay-me-later situation, if there ever was one. If, if, the, if a child uh, is born to uh, an addict and goes home, and that addict is not, for whatever reason, is not able to properly care for the child, and the child is in a chaotic situation, perhaps abused, perhaps neglected, perhaps neglected, um, you're going to find that child again. You, you, the county's going to be back there when there is a child abuse report, 
And now you're forced to take custody. You're forced to pay foster parents on a monthly basis and all that it takes to care for a child. Um, and if, it, if you, you may see it there, you may see it in a, in a child older as a delinquent. You may see the child later as a, as a, 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 a drug addict addict. So, you know, this is, this is so, such a classic example of whether society steps up at the beginning of this process uh, and 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 gives this child a fair shot to grow up healthy mentally and physically and become a good productive member of society, or whether this cycle continues. I heard the the uh, other young lady talk about a woman. The mother was you know smoking cigarettes and she was twelve and so forth. Well, you know if you went back to her early days, probably the cycle could have been broken there. And, well, uh, but you but you well know, and I may hate to say this because it sounds like looking at the world. Uh, with a glass uh, half empty, but we very often in this country, whether it's government, uh, whether it's a lot of other bureaucracy, we tend to think short term rather than long term. Well, that's the problem. It's a problem with uh, human nature. It's right, a problem with right. political cycles. Uh, and uh, you know, I give Kathleen Palm all the credit in the world because she's like a dog with a bone on this issue. She's just been persistent, and that's what it takes. We have to. This is a matter of waking people up to the to the reality that we do need to take a longer look. And you know, it's not that long a tunnel. I mean, it, 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 these, as I said, if if you don't intervene at the hospital early on and make that baby safe, it's, it may just be a matter of weeks or months or, or a couple of years before you're back involved, and it's going to cost you more money then. Well, one of the, the aspects of this that I wanted to point out and have our, uh, our panelists uh, discuss as well, that, okay, we've established that uh, these reports that are mandated aren't occurring as much as what they should, not nearly as often, but it seems as though uh, many hospitals or many doctors or many states, how they're looking at it, they're looking at it differently if the mother was dependent on heroin or painkillers, for example, rather than being treated for her addiction with, say, methadone or, or, or something like that. That if it's a prescribed drug that the mother is dependent on, it's, it's almost like it's viewed as, well, this is okay. Well, that's not how federal law reads. Um, well, I know that's how right, the law right, does right. read. But... And, but Pennsylvania last year changed it law, and quite frankly, this is one of those things that we changed it without much dialogue, and we haven't been talking about what the impact is. Hospitals may still want to refer that mom who is using methadone, but one of the things we have to be clear about is there are times um, that mom is u an active heroin user. She has an unplanned pregnancy, so she's four or five months into a pregnancy. The best thing for her clinically is to convert her so that she doesn't all of a sudden stop using. But in converting her to methadone, we we then, because we changed our state law, people see methadone and say, oh, no need for children to respond. Yeah, she's fine. No need, right. And unfortunately, we don't dig a little deeper. And the fact of the matter is, any of us who know recovery is, it takes a long time. So that's a very fragile recovery in some ways. And so that's one of the things, quite frankly, Pennsylvania has to submit a plan by the end of this month to the feds, because the feds all of a sudden are cracking down a little bit more. But there's been no debate. There's been no dialogue. We haven't pulled people around a table except for a one-hour meeting in the governor's office on June 2nd. And and so what are we going to say in our plan in, on June 30th? And I think that's where we feel some 
exasperation is if you look at the Washington Post headlines in 2003, if you look at the congressional record, literally every single word that was written in the Washington Post, the headlines, everything, good intentions, lots of disciplines with good intentions, but nobody knows what to do on behalf of these kids. We are 13 years later. We could be saying the same thing. And the worst thing now is more kids are impacted, more moms are impacted, and babies are dying. And we're still acting like we'll get to it later. Scott, I think the frustration here is that when you actually do think about this and and talking with doctors, talking with specialists that that deal with these cases, talking with uh, advocates like like Kathy Palm here, um, when you when you when you talk to people, these are eminently savable children. This is if if all the steps are carried out uh, in in the right way, these kids can recover to be great contributing members of society. There, there was that myth about the crack babies that Congressman Greenwood talked a little bit about and what kind of long-term effect that would have for children. That myth has been deconstructed. That myth is, uh, it's a myth. I mean, if you address this from the start and continue to address it through that child's life, through that adult's life, these are people that could be graduating the top of their class from their high school and be going off to a four-year college and become great contributing members of society. And so we shouldn't, uh, you know, I think that some advocates get frustrated because there is that othering that goes on a little bit and says, ah, that's not my problem. But it's, it like Congressman Greenwood says, it's going to show up. So whether you address it now or address it later, you have an opportunity, though, early in life to really uh, get these kids on, on a stable path. Dr. Andre, let me, let me address the methadone versus, versus okay, heroin. That, for um, that, that the woman is, the mother is uh, converted herself from heroin to methadone, whether it was in the course of her pregnancy or in the course of treatment that predated her, her, her pregnancy, that's a good thing. Now, the baby is still going to go through a horrible withdrawal from that methadone. I mean, make no mistake about that. But keep, the, the, keep your eye on the ball. All we really should focus on is, is that child safe? doesn't matter whether the drug is legal. I mean, look, if a mother walks into a hospital and delivers a fetal alcohol syndrome child, right, she bought all of that alcohol perfectly legally. But she may, I mean, she's clearly demonstrated that she has an alcohol problem that she couldn't stop using during her pregnancy, okay? So that should be a bit of a red flag, not a, not a, a, a reason to judge her, not a reason to automatically take custody of the child, to accuse her of being an abuser, but just to say, this is kind of a hit in the bottom a moment. It's a, that's when intervention is usually most effective. Okay. Dr. Yep. No, I was, I was going to say, I think we just need to realize that this is the perfect opportunity for a changing point in a woman's life. You know, up until this point, she had it only to take care of her, and now there's somebody else that she needs to take care of. So women are open, and this is the, the time that if we can actually offer them the proper support, and the, the support needs to start, you know, during their pregnancy, making sure they have the support groups and the right medical treatment during their pregnancy. Then once they're in the hospital, we can also work with them, and then we need the programs afterwards to help support them as their their child's growing. But these women want to get better. They want to do something for their their child. This is the time to intervene. I wanted to follow up on what Ben was uh, discussing, though. The long-term effects physically and maybe even mentally on these babies born drug dependent. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, are there times, now Ben said from what he understands, that, uh, you know, most of the time, 
it's, it's it, you know, it can, the baby can be born having a completely normal life. But are there times where the drug does have an impact on their long-term health? Right. It, this is actually a really complicated issue because we, we don't understand and we don't have the, the studies to say, what if you were the mom who used heroin during your first three months and then you got clean and then you never used it again? Um, maybe you used methadone throughout your whole pregnancy. Maybe you were, you were brought up in just a single-parent home where there wasn't a lot of support. So you have a child that was born to a drug-dependent mom, and then you're looking at second grade. You know, could this child have had an A if mom didn't use the methadone during pregnancy? Um, you know, or it, you know, is the the C explainable? So you just—it's really difficult to identify when, like, the drug, the time of pregnancy used, the home environment. So a lot of these kids are are born to these drug-addicted moms, and then afterwards they're in poor environmental conditions, and so they may not turn out okay. So it really, like I said, it's it's not a, a clear-cut issue. There can be some side effects. Um, we, we do think, but it, it's not really clear-cut to separate out the, the medication plus the environment. And the research, clearly, you know, the doctor knows that better than me, is that we don't know what the long-term impact. But to Ben's point, you know, some of the babies in the Reuters story that was done in December, some of the babies that we see are preventable deaths. Well, let me let me just stop you there for a second. The Reuters story you're referring to, and we'll put a, we'll put a uh, link on our website, WYTF.org, because that was, Reuters did a uh, pretty lengthy and mm-hmm. exhaustive uh, story about uh, not just Brian, uh, Brighton, Brighton Cummins, b- yeah. but uh, others as well. And uh, we also will uh, talk with uh, Congressman Greenwood. But we'll put a link on there. But go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted. No, no, you, no. I was just going to say that, I mean, I think that's the thing. That's what's been motivating us is that you can see that there are ways that if there were support, if we were involved with families early on, you know, again, it's still a voluntary process, but how do you prevent deaths? So I think we don't necessarily have all the research we need about long-term impact in terms of early childhood and through teen years. But one of the things we do see is we know that if we can have the proper supports, if mom's feeling supported, if she has access to treatment, if there's home visiting, you know, those types of things could be preventing infants. We should stop reading about six-week-olds that are suffocating and calling it a terrible accident. It is a terrible accident, but it's also the reality is it was preventable, and we should focus on the prevention. And we just need to remember that a lot of these women did make poor choices in their life. They probably alienated their family because they stole thousands of dollars in order to support their, their drug habit. So they really don't have the social support after birth, and they're really truly by themselves. And if they're, you know, and if the, the father of the child has left, then who is that? Who can they really lean on? We have an email here from a listener. Crystal wants to know, a relative is about seven months pregnant and addicted uh, to either heroin or meth. She's out of state and stopped speaking to her entire family. What is the best thing that we as family can do to help her, her other small children, and her baby? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing to the doctor's point. I think we don't back it up enough. We really need to be talking about plans of safe care when mom's pregnant. Ideally, we pre- we prevent pregnancies that are unplanned when someone's in an active addiction. But I would encourage them, um, you know, to gather the resources that are available for treatment. Um, pregnant women are the top priority in this country for treatment, um, you know, one of the top priorities. So I would gather in your state what are the resources for treatment for a pregnant woman. Um, also, some of the home visiting that engage moms that, that are pregnant. Um, you know, even if there was some involvement with children youth, children youth's not going to get involved when the woman's pregnant. So you're really dependent much more but, on the health care system. But the hard part about this, I mean, it's not easy, period, right. but the, the real hard part about this is it doesn't sound like this woman wants any help, right. at least from her family. Right. 
And that's yeah. And hospitals are going to figure that out. I mean, there's just there's certain risk factors that we see that we know. You know what? We really need to do a urine toxicology screen on mom when she comes into the hospital. So limited or no prenatal care is, is one of them. And I mean, if she's using heroin, just you know having track marks. So physical exam findings will tell us. You know what? We really need to to take a look a little bit more closely. And then the baby's going to start to have signs of withdrawal if if she's using. So if she is not seeking any support, we hope that she's going to go into a hospital and deliver. And then that hospital should be able to recognize at, that something's happening. At seven months pregnant, uh, is that uh, that baby already addicted, already dependent? That's a great question, because if, if she should all of a sudden deliver at this point, actually our preterm babies show a lot less signs of withdrawal than our term babies, and some of that is really? just... Mm-hmm. And some of that is just the neurologic immaturity um, of the, the baby. So it's usually 34, 35 weeks gestation and up. That's when we see the, the more severe symptoms mm-hmm. from our babies. And if I recall from the email, there were other children involved. So this may be one of those times where you do want to call children and youth because it may be that the children that are already here and living with mom are at risk. Um, and so, you know, hopefully by engaging, again, that looks punitive to engage children and youth, but oftentimes children and youth don't remove kids. We figure out a way to engage engage for services. We figure out a way to be supportive. And so in this case, you could be helping the children that are here and potentially getting mom connected to services that are helpful for the rest of the pregnancy. We only have a few minutes left. Uh, Congressman Greenwood, from a legislative point of view, from a law, I'm not going to say law enforcement, from uh, you know your legislation that was passed 13 years ago, what has to happen? Well, um, I think a number of things have happened. I think, um, and I'm going to give Kathleen a lot of credit for this, um, the Congress has been alerted, the Obama administration has been alerted, the Wolf administration has been alerted. I think it's becoming increasingly apparent to uh, doctors and hospitals and nurses and the county children and youth agencies that this is their responsibility. But um, it's, it, it's, we have to be unrelenting. Uh, we can, you know, we can get people excited now, and they can go back to sleep. So it's just, it's a, it's the Kathleen Palms of the world, and the former congressman of the world, and the, and the doctor and the reporters, all have to just um, not let this issue go to sleep, as long as we see um, these kids falling uh, tragically through the cracks. Kathleen, I'll let you have the, the last word here. What needs to happen? <coughs> just following up on what Congressman Greenwood said. Well, you know, it's interesting. We called for a task force um, in the state, and we were hesitant to do that because we've done that once before on child protection, and we've created a big pressure point on the child welfare system. But this is complicated. We just did in 45 minutes. We've identified housing, health care. So we really need, in, in a very intentional way, the legislature, um, the governor's office, all of us to be committed to getting around a table and saying, so what is a plan of safe care look like? How do we do it? Congress is going to do their thing. We're going to keep urging Congress not just to want to whack states over the head and say you're not complying, but to also give states the resources. And there are existing resources states could use. They just have to pull them together in a different way than they have. But this is going to take us sitting around a table and figuring out, I don't know very much about this. I just know it's possible we can do something different if we start bringing people around the table and encouraging us to talk and not in a punitive way and not paint ourselves into a box if I'm here on behalf of the mom or I'm here on behalf of the children. I'm actually here on behalf of the mother-child dyad, and I think we can prevent abuse, and I think we can prevent kids from dying, and we should um, be working to protect moms as well. Kathleen Palm is the founder of the Center for Children's Justice, former Congressman James Greenwood, Dr. Connie Andreco, director of neonatology at Wellspan Effort at Community Hospital and WITS Transforming Health reporter Ben Allen. Thank all of you for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. Thank you.
Thank you. And I wanted to let you know that uh, this is part of WITF's Transforming Health Initiative. Uh, for Transforming Health, we take a deeper, deeper look at the changing tide of health care. Check out WITF's Transforming Health online. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system. Online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and WellSpan Health. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. You've probably heard a lot about this uh, in the last uh, week or so. Uh, Last week, Philadelphia became the first major city in the country to enact what has become known as a soda tax. A cent and a half tax will be added to every ounce of soda or other sweet drinks. The revenue will be used for several causes, including preschool. Cities across the country are watching to see what happens in Philadelphia. To tell us more is WHYY and Philadelphia reporter Katie Culinary. Katie, welcome to the program. All right, I th- hold on just a second here. Katie, are you there? I'm here. Can you okay, hear me? yeah, now I can. Now I can. I couldn't hear you before. Oh, okay, that. uh, that's all right. All right, Katie, uh, provide a little bit of background because, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to do this is this is not just a Philadelphia issue. It is right now, but right. as I said, the entire country is, is watching what's going on right now. So provide some background. Sure. So, well, you have uh, cities like San Francisco and Oakland and a couple of other smaller towns in California, as well as Boulder, Colorado, that have soda tax initiatives on the ballot this fall. So voters are going to head to the polls to decide whether they want to have a soda tax in their cities. And so they were watching how Philadelphia shaped its argument. And what was unique about Philadelphia was this was a proposal that originated with the city's new mayor, Jim Kenney, who's only been in office about six months. And he wanted originally a three cents per ounce tax on sugary drinks. So that includes sodas and iced teas and energy drinks and anything with added sugar. And diet drinks originally were exempt. And he was framing it not as a public health issue as other soda tax proposals have been framed, but he could have said, look, we need revenue. This is the poorest big city in America, and I've got stuff that I campaigned on, and a soda tax would help raise the revenue that we need for this. And so that stuff includes expanding pre-K. Mayor Kenny has a universal pre-K plan. He also wants to do a major initiative to replace some of the city's aging recreation centers and libraries, which are more than a century old. So he, he really pushed this as a revenue initiative that would help a very poor city, not as, you know, kind of the, the typical, you know, what gets framed as a quote-unquote nanny state argument of, you know, we want to control what people drink and discourage them from drinking soda. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they first heard what uh, Mayor Kenny had proposed, thought back to uh, New York City and uh, what Michael Bloomberg, when he was uh, mayor of New York, now he was looking at it from a health point of view, and it was different in that it was uh, sweet drinks above a certain level. But, uh, you know, Mayor Kenny made no no bones about it that this was a revenue raiser. And originally it was supposed to be three cents per ounce. Now it's down to uh, a a cent and a half. But give us a sense of what that adds to a sugary drink. Right. So that would add about... Think about 18 cents to sort of your typical can, um, and that's if all of the one and a half cents per ounce gets passed on to the consumer. I should note that the one and a half cents is actually levied on the distributor, so that's the wholesale guys who sell to the retailers, like your corner stores or your supermarkets, that then sell to us. 
And there, of course, with only one other city in the country, Berkeley, California, having a soda tax, we can't really, there's not a lot of precedence for this, Scott, so we don't exactly know how this is going to play out in Philadelphia. But what we saw in Berkeley was anywhere from 30 to 70 percent of the tax got passed along, according to a, a study there. Um, soda, it, the more of the tax was passed along. Juice drinks with added sugar, less of the tax was passed along. So it's really up to the distributors uh, who are selling these drinks how much of that gets passed on to the retailer and then how much the retailer wants to pass the tax along to the consumer. So if the full tax is passed on to the consumer, we're looking at about 18 cents for a typical can. You know, this surprised some people that uh, Philadelphia was able to get this passed because uh, there were some some major uh, lobbying efforts, advertising. Uh, the soda companies uh, came out, the, the beverage uh, uh, lobbying firms came out and uh, were, were, were against it. But, I mean, it won by a pretty uh, substantial vote in the, in the city council. But what were some of the arguments that uh, those against it had to say? Well, yeah, and so the, I should say that the campaign against this was funded by the American Beverage Association, which is a national trade group um, that's largely funded by the big soda companies that you think of like Coke and Pepsi. And they spent about $5 million on ads. That's the most recent figure that we have. Um, I mean, just people were pummeled. Uh, TV, radio, every time you turned it on, you heard or saw a, a, an anti-soda tax ad. And so their central argument, the way they framed it was they called it a grocery tax. Um, they, they tried to kind of convince lower-income Philadelphians that this was going to really hit their wallets. Uh, they had the Teamsters Union, which is the people who drive the soda delivery trucks and the folks who work in soda bottling plants here in the Philly area, that they were going to lose their jobs if fewer people were drinking these drinks in, in order to avoid the tax. Um, and so they really framed it as this is going to be something that's going to hit poor people. It's going to be a regressive tax, meaning that low-income folks are going to, who spend more of their income on things like food, food and groceries are going to spend more of their income paying this tax. And then the counter argument to that was, well, these are going to be for programs that are actually going to help the poor um, who've had a lot of the, the strong marketing, uh, who, who tend to drink a lot of sugary drinks. And so it, it was actually, it was sort of the, the war over, over kind of this one constituency in Philadelphia, which was the poor. You know, it was trying to win the hearts and minds of lower income Philadelphians. Now, Katie, again, what were those programs that the money will go toward and, uh, and why is Philadelphia in such a, a bad condition to, to pay for those programs? Well, we have a city that has a 26.3% poverty rate. We have more people living in deep poverty than any other major city in America. Um, and, of course, it's a city that is already heavily taxed. Uh, the city has raised property taxes at least four times in the last several years. And so a lot of these resources are tapped out. Of course, it's no secret, too, that we have a lot of issues with our school system and a lot of tax money goes there. And so Mayor Kenny really wanted a dedicated revenue stream in order to pay for three very specific programs. One is expanding pre-K um, to lower income people in certain neighborhoods in the city that are underserved by high quality preschools. The second is community schools, uh, which are schools, it's like a typical elementary school that also kind of serves as a hub for other services in a neighborhood. So it's a place where students can also go and get their eyes checked or go see a dentist. And the third Revenue initiative is a major overhaul of the city's parks, recreation centers, and libraries. So now the the soda tax revenue wouldn't pay for that overhaul, but what it would do is help pay down the debt from a large three hundred million dollar bond that would go to major upgrades to these 
rec centers and libraries, many of which are more than 100 years old and, and frankly, falling apart. So, Katie, we only have about a minute left, and I want to thank you very much for joining us today. You know, one of the reasons that I did want to have you on the program, because I, I like talking to you, for one thing, but <laughs> but uh, in about 40 seconds, I said that there will be cities across this country watching. Have you heard anything about what, what you know, what they're looking at? Absolutely. Well, one interesting factor here is Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, who put $1.6 million into counter ads to help pass the soda tax in Philly. And he says that he's prepared to spend his money in other cities like San Francisco and Oakland that have ballot initiatives on soda taxes this fall. And so you're going to be seeing really a lot of ramped up rhetoric in those other cities because they're being pro-soda tax folks there are being bolstered by the big win in Philadelphia. Mm. WHYY Philadelphia reporter Katie Culinary. Katie, thank you very much for being with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure, Scott. Coming up tomorrow, uh, we, we talk about uh, some history on uh, WITF. Uh, uh, Cooper Wingert, who has written, you know, he's 18 years old, but he has written his 10th book, this one about uh, slavery in Pennsylvania and the Underground Railroad.